All right. Uh, it's great to be with you all. My name is Larry. And uh, today we'll be starting a new sermon series, and it's called Women in the Bible. Um, we'll be highlighting the stories of different women, about eight-ish, of these women over different weeks, how God interacted with them, and uh, what we can learn about how God views women and how are we to view women. And um, if you'd like to plan ahead, so next week we're it's an anniversary service, and so we'll do something a little bit different. But then the subsequent weeks after that, we'll come back to the series. And uh, today we are exploring Eve, uh, the first woman in the Bible. Uh, but before we dive in, uh, I thought maybe I'd share a little bit about the why. Why are we doing a sermon series like this? Uh, I, I don't think I've ever been part of a sermon series like this. Um, much of society uh, revolves around men. You know, we've certainly made a lot of progress over the past, you know, a few decades, few hundred years um, in elevating and empowering women, advancing women's rights, but there's still some room to go. And uh, while the laws of the land have become a lot more equitable, the land meaning, you know, the United States where we are, while the laws of the land have become a lot more equitable, the culture of the land sometimes still falls short. And what I mean by that is uh, sometimes there are things that are not as obvious to us men that are going on that impact women negatively. And it's not like a bunch of people intentionally came together and said and decided, hey, let's do this and this and this and this to hurt women or to limit women. But uh, there is a culture that is the status quo that prevents uh, women from being all they could be. And um, there's a recent, there's a speech from the recent Barbie movie that captures a lot of this. And uh, if you're planning on watching it, uh, sorry, spoiler alert, I'm just going to read a little portion from this uh, movie. Okay. And so you can just tune out for three minutes and then come back in if you, if you want to watch the movie yourself. But one of the characters, Gloria, played by America Ferreira, she gives a long speech about what it's like to be a woman and I think it really captures the a lot of the sentiment uh, that a lot of women experience uh, in modern society. So I'm just going to read it out, okay? She says, it's a little bit long. It's, I think, three slides, okay? It is literally impossible to be a woman. You're so beautiful and so smart, and it kills me that you don't think you're good enough. Like, we have to always be extraordinary, but somehow we're always doing it wrong. You have to be thin, but not too thin. And you can never say you want to be thin. You have to say you want to be healthy, but also you have to be thin. You have to have money, but you can't ask for money because that's crass. You have to be a boss, but you can't be mean. You have to lead, but you can't squash other people's ideas. You're supposed to love being a mother, but don't talk about your kids all the time. You have to be a career woman, but also always be looking out for other people. You have to answer for men's bad behavior, which is insane. But if you point that out, you're accused of complaining. You're supposed to stay pretty for men, but not so pretty that you tempt them too much or that you threaten other women because you're supposed to be part of the sisterhood. But always stand out and always be grateful, but never forget that the system is rigged. So find a way to acknowledge that, but also always be grateful. You have to never get old, never be rude, never show off, never be selfish, never fall down, never fail, never show fear, never get out of line. It's too hard. Sorry, there's four slides. It's too contradictory and nobody gives you a medal or says thank you. And it turns out, in fact, that not only are you doing everything wrong, but also everything is your fault. 
I'm just so tired of watching myself and every single other women, woman tie herself into knots so that people will like us. And so you can, you know, agree or disagree with, you know, how, uh, you know, this is the statement, but this is the reality for a lot of women in our country. This is how they feel because this was a lot when this uh, movie came out, a lot of people love this quote and they were reposting this quote and they were like, this is exactly what I feel. And so I'm not a woman, so I don't experience these things, but it seems very clear. A lot of people do. And unfortunately this um, struggle of the modern woman is not just a secular society thing. It's not something that goes on out there in the world. If it just was that, you know, we don't need it. It doesn't need to be a huge priority here in the church, but it's also a church thing. Many women in the church feel a lot of the sentiments in this speech as well, in the church context. They feel judged for being too this or too that, and they feel they do not have a voice. They're not represented. They feel like they're blamed for things that are not their fault. They don't have the ability to fix things, even though they want to fix things. And it can feel stifling to be a woman in the church sometimes. And um, sometimes uh, I think there's a temptation on two sides, on two extremes. Okay. On the one extreme, people just, you know, sort of say, oh, this is just secular ideologies, feminist ideologies. And we just got to, you know, we just got to fall in line, re reject these ideologies. Okay. And the other sentiment is to sort of conclude in order for us to be truly free, we need to completely throw off all constraints and sort of get rid of all these institutions that, that confine us. And so burn religion down, burn Hollywood down, burn the Supreme Court down, and sort of this radical, I'm going to rebel against everything, okay? But I don't think that's going to solve everything at the end of the day. I believe that the, the way for women to truly experience honor and dignity and freedom and all these things that women are striving for is to investigate what does God have to say about women and therefore, how does God view women and how should we view women? And how can we build a church and foster a church that views women the way God does? And that is the way women can flourish. You know, as Jesus says in John, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I really believe it is through learning about the truth of women, how God understands women, how God designed women, how God uh, fashions women that we can uh, truly create a place where women can experience true freedom. So through the sermon series, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look into different biblical characters, discover who God designed women to be, just through these snapshot examples. And hopefully through this process, uh, if you are a woman, you would experience a greater level of freedom. And if you are a man, you'd be able to learn about how to create uh, an environment that allows women to flourish. All right. So today we're talking about Eve. We'll explore a few passages from her story, which is found in Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, but uh, uh, but let's set the scene a little bit, okay? So Genesis 1 through 3, there's a lot of... So let me, let me, let me give a few caveats here, okay? So throughout the sermon, uh, I'll be saying a few things that may be a little bit controversial, and uh, maybe you'll disagree with some of these things. And I want to say that's okay. You know, I myself... Uh, you know, two or three years ago would have disagreed with some of the things that I'm about to say today. And so I'm always changing. And so it's possible a few years from now, I may disagree with what I'm saying today. So if you disagree, that's okay. But I'm going to, I want to try to 
balance, set a balance by saying what I think the Bible says, but also I want to present different views. Okay. And so that, so you sort of understand the scope of what's going on. All right. So the first thing I want to talk about is how to understand Genesis one to three. I don't think it's, I think in today's day and age, there's a lot of controversy around how to interpret Genesis one through. So I'll say a few things on the topic. Okay. So Genesis one through three is hotly debated in um, Christian scholarship. And there are different views on how to properly interpret these passages. Okay. Um, so there's a few things that make it difficult to interpret. Firstly, Genesis one to three contains some elements that at first glance seem to be borrowed by other ancient creation myths. Okay, so when you look at ancient Egypt and ancient Babylon and all these ancient Sumeria, there are some elements in their creation stories which archaeologically seem to predate the story of Genesis. And they share some of these elements. So that's a big question. What do we do about that? What does that mean for how we understand Genesis? Okay. Secondly, another thing is Genesis 1 and 2, at first glance, they seem to be uh, two different creation stories, okay? So Genesis 1, it's technically Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, uh, like chapter 2, verse 3. But in that section, there's the seven days of creation, first day, second day, third day. And then that narrative, okay, the plants were created on day three and the people are created on day six, okay? And then in Genesis 2, it seems to be, at first glance, another creation narrative. It says there's no plants and God formed the man out of the dust, okay? So what do we do with that? How do we make sense of that? All right. Another thing going on is, uh, thirdly, there is this issue of how do we square this story with the scientific consensus on human origins? Okay. Because many people in the scientific community, they have a totally different understanding of how the world came to be. And so they have anthropology and they have uh, you know, archaeology, and, and they have all these things, okay, that sort of explain human origins in a different way. So how do we square this? So th there's a lot of going on, all right? I'm not covering everything, but I just want to say there's there's three big bucket common ways to read Genesis 1 and 3, all right? And, uh, and I, think, I think you can be a Christian and embrace any one of these three things, okay? So the first way is what you might call the traditional interpretation. And what this does is you would say, um, Genesis one is about the creation of the world. Okay. In seven days, more or less. And it may be some, some of these days are metaphorical days, but generally this is the order of things. And then Genesis two, what happens is, uh, it retraces back to day six. So Genesis one, you go through seven days and then Genesis two, you retrace back to day six. And it's a zoomed in picture of what exactly happened on day six zooms in on the creation of human beings. All right. So that's, uh, and, and so God created the world and the first human beings were Adam and Eve and we're all descended from Adam and Eve. That's the first view, that's sort of the traditional view, all right? The second view says that Genesis 1 and 2 are actually about two different things altogether. So Genesis 1 is about the creation of the world and it can be metaphorical if you want, or but that's about the creation of the world. And Genesis 2 is about the creation of the Garden of Eden, which is a separate event which could have happened potentially thousands or even billions of years after Genesis 1. Okay, so that's another view. So in this view, Adam and Eve are not necessarily the first humans. The first humans were created in Genesis 1, but they were the first humans in the Garden of Eden because that's what Genesis 2 is about, okay? 
And uh, they were the first humans in this special heaven on earth place called the Garden of Eden that was unique from the rest of creation. And they were installed as representatives of human beings. So that's another view. And then the third view interprets everything metaphorically. And they would say, these are not necessarily historical events, but you're supposed to read them sort of like you would Aesop's fables or sort of how you would read Jesus's parables. And that uh, these are just to demonstrate theological truths uh, about who God is and what God is like and who humans are and things like that. So it's meant to teach us that humans are image bearers of God. There's diversity in creation. There's beauty. There's diver- there's pain, whatever. So, but it's, it's, it's not literal historical events. Okay. So regardless of what view you take, okay, I think the things that we have to affirm as Christians is that Adam and Eve, whether they're the first humans, the biological ancestors of all, whether they're the first residents in the garden, whether they're just mythological symbols, Adam and Eve, they represent human beings. They represent human beings uh, and uh, and their actions, what they did uh, uh, represents us as a human race. Okay, so I think that should definitely be affirmed. So with that, I'm going to dive in. Let's talk about them. Okay, let's go to Genesis 126. Uh, this describes the creation of humanity. And this is what it says. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. All right. Okay, so nerd alert. Okay, I'm going to go into the, the Hebrew a little bit. So the word mankind here is the word, the Hebrew word Adam. And this is one of the most confusing aspects of Genesis 1 to 3, is that the word Adam can technically be translated in four different ways. Okay. Okay. Four different ways. The first uh, translation of the word Adam is what is translated in this passage, which is mankind, or mankind or humanity as a whole. So that is one of the ways to translate the word Adam. That's a perfectly legitimate way. Okay. The second translation is a singular human being, gender neutral. So an Adam can be just a person. Okay. Without respect to gender. Okay. The third translation is a singular male person in contrast to a female person. So, Adam can also mean a male person, okay? And the fourth translation is it can be a proper name referring to a specific person named Adam, okay? So this is why there's so much disagreement on how to interpret Genesis 1 to 3 is because this term, Adam, shows up numerous times and people debate what does Adam mean in each context? Which of these four definitions does it take, all right? But in this in this verse in particular, most the consensus is this is humanity or mankind as humankind as a whole. Okay. Um, so in this context, God designed all human beings to be like him, to rule over creation. And there's nothing on sex or gender yet until the very next verse. Okay, let's read that. Verse 27. So God created mankind, that's the same word, Adam, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So this is the first time. We have this distinction of the sexes. God created literally Adam in his own image. And it's clear here, this is not a gendered Adam because it says male and female, he created them both in his image. All right. So this is a broad category. Both men and women are created in God's image. You know, earlier I mentioned there are some similarities between Genesis and other creation myths. This is actually one of the areas that sets Genesis apart from other creation myths this idea of the image of God. So if you look at ancient literature, when you 
you know, read about this idea of something being in God's image, most commonly it's used in two different ways. Okay. The first way is uh, idols were considered images of God. So when someone erects an idol, people would commonly call this, this is God's image. So that was sort of one of the ways this term was used. And then the second way this was used is rulers were often considered images of God. So Pharaoh, for example, was the image of God. So they represent God on earth. They do God's will on earth. And so here in Genesis 1, what's interesting is it makes a semi-radical uh, statement that all human beings are image bearers of God, not just rulers and not just men, men and women alike all bear the image of God. And there's this, there's a strong statement of essentially, you know, equality. It's not just, you know, specific individuals who are special who tell other people what to do. They're image bearers of God. Everybody is. Okay. Um, and it sort of makes a point. There's, there's connections later in the Bible. This is also why idols are not necessary. You don't need people, you don't need these statues, these works of wood and stone to represent God because people, human beings already do that, okay? Anyways, um, let's keep going. Let's skip down uh, to Genesis 2, 5 through 9. So we're in the other creation narrative now. It says, now no shrub had not yet appeared, or so now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man, this is Adam, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so... This is, you know, where the debate, you know, happens, okay? Scholars debate, what, how do we translate this term, Adam, here, okay? In this translation, it is a man, okay? It's a singular human being, probably gendered, male. That's, that's what this translation is going, at, going for. But I think there, there are also many people, they would interpret this as a person. It's not just a man, it's a person, okay? So keep that in mind. Let's fast forward. Uh, God tells us, Adam to work the ground, to keep the garden, and not to eat from this tree. And then uh, we get to verse 18. Okay. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man, Adam, to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Okay. So again, the traditional interpretation is that this is a male person who is alone. And so what happens is God creates a helper, a female person to help the male person, okay? So I wanna say a few things about this, okay? So with this interpretation, with this reading, it's argued then that one of the primary roles for women is to be helpers, okay? Do you see that? So this is sort of the natural progression of things. If this is a male person, and if you're creating a helper, it turns out to be a woman, okay? Then the, one of the primary identities, one of the primary uh, uh, markers characteristics of the woman is they are to be helpers, okay? But here's another question then. What does it mean to be a helper? Okay, in our culture, when we think of someone who is a helper, sometimes we associate that term with someone of a lower status, okay? We think of someone who is assisting someone who has a higher status, 
while that person has a lower status. In fact, you know, sometimes, you know, there's a, a movie called The Help, which was a novel. And so some we have these associations that come to mind. And in that movie, you have a black domestic worker working in a white home in the 60s. That's what the movie is about. And so sometimes when we have this, this very term helper, uh, it connotes an idea of someone is serving someone who is of a higher status. Okay. However, biblically, that's actually the that term doesn't have that connotation. This Hebrew word is is there. And its most common use in the Old Testament is to be applied to God. The person, the character that takes on this term more than anybody else in the Old Testament is God. For example, okay, Psalm 33, 20. We hope we wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help is there and our shield. Here's another one. Psalm 121, one to two. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help is there come from? My help is there comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So biblically, when this word is used, it does not necessarily mean that somebody is subservient. Okay. Someone of an equal status or even a higher status can help somebody else. Okay. So I think that's really important to notice. However, I want to backtrack a little bit. There's another interpretation of this passage, which doesn't see this as a statement on gender at all. Okay. Let's read 20 to 24 and let's talk about this. Okay. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Okay. In NIV, this is the first time the proper name Adam is used. But again, it's, a, it's the same word, Adam. So there are other translations. They interpret this as a man. Okay. The man. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. And, and this Hebrew word can also be translated side. Okay, by the way, he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Okay, so I'm going to share with you another theory. The first time I heard this, uh, it sort of blew my mind. But check this out. Okay, so some scholars, they actually say this. The first original human being was not male. The first original human being was a gender-neutral person. That's a, that's a perfectly legitimate way to translate this word Adam. And what God did was he put this person to sleep and he took out this person's side. Because the word for rib can also be translated aside. That's actually the most common translation in the Hebrew Old Testament. And in this view, God took out this person's side and created a new person with it. And so that is why this original human being said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And that is why in verse 24, we have this statement on marriage. In marriage, a man and woman, they join together as one flesh. And so the picture is this, okay? The first human being was gender neutral. And then God splits this person into two male and female. And then marriage, then the statement on marriage is a picture of the male and female people joining together once again, becoming one flesh. They were one flesh. Now they're two flesh. Now they're coming back to one flesh. That's the idea. Okay. So I'm throwing that theory out there. Personally, I don't know if I buy that view. Okay. I'm just saying that I think it's very interesting. I think there's a few issues with it. I think it's a very attractive though, but I think it's an interesting thing just to just know that there are a lot of scholars who say that. All right. But regardless of how you read this, okay, so there's two possibilities, okay? There's a man and a woman is created out of the man, or there's a, a gender neutral person divided into male or female. One thing you cannot conclude from this passage is 
oh, God created men to have authority over women. That is just not in the text. That's not there. There's no hint that men and women were created to have unequal statuses. All right. The clear implication of the narrative, I believe, is that men and women are equal. We read in Genesis 1, men and women are both image bearers of God, that they both rule over creation together. Men and women, they have the same dignity and responsibility of keeping the garden. They're bone to bone and flesh to flesh, and, and they're one flesh. It's all the language we see seem to be statements of equality. Now, the question then is, when does inequality come about then? And that, the first time inequality comes about is in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, I'm fast forwarding a little bit, both the man and the woman, the woman, the woman first, and then later the man, they were tempted by the serpent in the garden, and they disobeyed God by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then as a result, there are multiple curses laid out in turn, curses to the serpent, curses to the woman, curses to the man. And there are two lines in particular I want to highlight that are relevant to, to today's sermon. Okay, the first to the serpent in Genesis uh, 3.15, God says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. All right. So what this is prophesying is sin has happened. And now because of sin, there will be this very long battle between these two lineages, the lineage of the serpent and the lineage of the woman. And later we'll discover this lineage of the serpent is a sort of a, it's not literally we're fighting snakes. Okay. But this is a metaphorical way of saying there are people who, when they do wrong things, it's as if they are uh, symbolic descendants of the serpents. Okay. And uh, so that's one thing. The second thing I want to highlight, we'll, we'll be on the, we'll, we'll get back to that later. But the second thing I want to highlight is the curse of the woman in the second half of 316, which says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This, I think, is the first mention of inequality between the sexes. You know, there's a lot of ways to interpret this. This is debated in a lot of ways. And it's also confusing because different translations translate this verse in different ways. But I think the most plain reading interpretation of this verse is this, that patriarchy is part of the fall. I think this is the plain reading, that before Genesis 3 happens, men and women were created to be equal in dignity, equal in responsibility. And then because of sin, because of these curses, patriarchy now exists. I think that's the natural way to read this. Every instance of male patriarchy from the poor treatment of women like Hagar and Tamar in the book of Genesis, all the way to the abuses in the modern Me Too movement, all of these things can be traced back to the fall. This curse, I believe, has also been so strong that has infiltrated the church and disguised itself as a theological system that the majority of Christians have believed for most of church history as well. Many Christians throughout church history also had extremely negative views of women. In early church history, you know, in the, throughout the Middle Ages, there were prominent church theologians who would write stuff like women are the root of all evil. Women are creatures of lust. It was negative, you know, and, and that's why celibacy became a huge part of church culture is even relations with women was seen as sinful. And so we have this long history in which 
I think the effects of the fall were playing out even in the church. And even today, many Christians still believe this idea that men are inherently wired by God to rule over women. In fact, that's what I believe for a lot of my life, for most of my life. I was raised in a pretty theologically conservative and socially conservative church. And uh, this was sort of the default view of my upbringing. And even when I entered into adulthood, even when I became a pastor, um, which was this church was less conservative slightly than the church I grew up, a little more moderate, but they still exert, asserted, for example, that only men could be elders or pastors. That was the view of that church. And that's what I believed. I, I signed up. I went to a seminary that taught the same thing as well. And this is reflective of this theological system, okay, which taught uh, that God wired men and women not just to be, uh, uh, I mean, they were equal in dignity, equal in, um, um, in the capacity to know God, but to be different in roles. And in particular, women were to submit to men. And I was taught and I believed that anything other than this was a compromise with secular feminism. And for most of my life, I didn't really question that. The system was sort of all I knew. Yeah. Um, my transition started, was very slow. Uh, probably the very beginnings was about six, seven years ago. You know, I was putting together a curriculum for a church membership class. And uh, I was trying to sort of assemble a few Bible passages to sort of give an explanation for why we only ordain men to be elders in our church or what's called men as elders. And um, and I remember doing my work, my homework at the time and just like reading through all these passages and reading a bunch of articles because that was a common question we would get in membership class. And I remember thinking like, are these passages it? Like I have a few passages here, but it doesn't seem to be a very solid case. But that's, that's what I had. And so I, I just sort of set it aside. Maybe a year or two later, I, I bumped into a pastor, a friend of mine. I was having a conversation with him, and he sort of just let it loose. He was, he believed women could be ordained and men could, uh, women could be pastors or elders. And I remember being surprised because he had also gone to a very, a pretty conservative seminary and uh, asking him about it. And he recommended a few books, and I read these books. And I remember going, oh, I skimmed, I skimmed through them. I didn't read them, but I skimmed through them. Because I didn't, I, I thought I was right. I, I, I didn't really need to give my time a day to this stuff. But I was like, I should at least know what these people are saying. But I remember I skimmed through them and I was like, huh, these arguments are pretty good. I don't really have time to dig into this right now, but one day I will and I'll learn why I'm right and they're wrong. And so that's what I, so I, and I moved on. And then a few years after that, it was March, 2021. So this is how recent it was. Okay. At the height of the Me Too movement, there was a shooting in Atlanta and uh, the majority of the women who were victims were Asian American women. And there was this rally, a Stanford AAPI rally in Maryland. And I think a few of you were actually there. But um, I attended this rally and, um, I, and one of the speakers said something to the effect of, we keep denouncing toxic masculinity in the church without addressing the root of toxic masculinity. Do not see that toxic masculinity is a direct result of a patriarchal theology. That's what she said. And my first thought was, no, that can't be right. You're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You, you can't attack a theology just because some people are messing up. You have a few bad apples. 
But then my second thought immediately following was, what if she's right? And that was the first time when I had this thought, like, what if I'm wrong? What if this theological system that I adopted for most of my life, that many of the Christians that adopted for most of their lives, what if that is wrong? And so that's when I decided to do the deep dive. And uh, I read a bunch of books and articles and talked to people on both sides. And I spent this long journey and I found myself at this place where I felt unable to defend my idea any longer. There were certainly some New Testament passages that hinted at this idea. But to me, but I think the big question was, why didn't these show up in the Old Testament? And why does it seem like, why are all of these passages so strange and awkward? And why are they grouped up in these slaves and masters passages? Like, and why am I reading these things this way and instead of that way? And I think the natural reading for me in a lot of these passages, these just seem to be about accommodating cultural norms at the time so that the church would be a good witness. That seemed to be the natural interpretation. And for every biblical passage that seemed to teach hierarchy between the sexes, it seemed like there was another biblical passage that seemed to be teaching total equality between the sexes. You know, so I was struggling with this. I didn't know what to make of it. And at the same time, I was bearing witness to a lot of pain and suffering to women in the church. And around this time, you know, I don't know if you follow Christian pop culture news, all that, but you know, I did. And, you know, you know, prominent evangelist and author, Rabbi Zacharias, he passed away. And there were all these allegations that there was sex abuse going on in his life. You know, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, that podcast was released, and there's a lot of things that were revealed that was wrong with his church, and including how they treated women. You know, Beth Moore, she was a prominent Southern Baptist teacher an author, and she was functionally chased out of the denomination, you know, uh, for her so-called progressive views. And so all these things were going on in the Christian world. And I just, every time one of these things would happen, I would just think about that thing I heard at the rally, which is do not see that toxic masculinity is a direct result of a patriarchal theology. And so eventually I just, I just was, I was kind of burnt out from pastoral ministry anyway. So I was like, you know what, I need to step down from being a pastor. I need to think about this. And so I took a break for a year and a half. And um, and then eventually I decided, you know what, I think I, I want to start pastoring again. But then I talked to the pastoral staff at the church I used to pastor at, and they decided because I couldn't take this stance and affirm male eldership, I wouldn't be qualified to pastor there anymore. And... Um, and uh, I just, I just, I just never thought that that would happen. And I, and and it's what I went through. It's not like what so many people have gone through. You know, there's, there's so many women who their whole lives they were told they cannot lead, they cannot teach, they cannot be ordained, they cannot pastor. And I think at that moment, I got a little glimpse of what that's like to be told you're not qualified. And um, and, uh, and that's, and I think that's the thing that really drew me over to the other side, just realizing this is what it's like for half of all humans. And I don't know if I can make a case from the Bible that this is God's will. You know, I'm not 100% confident in my views, even to this day. 
I still don't know exactly uh, what God will say when I reach heaven one day, and maybe I'll be wrong. And again, I want to make it clear. If you disagree with where I am today, you're welcome here, okay? I don't want to make it my goal to, you know, to, to convince you if you feel strongly about this. And I want you to know this is a safe space for you. We're on different journeys, okay? We all believe different things, that's okay. But honestly, just for me personally, just talking for myself, I'm at a place now where I recognize that maybe God designed men and women to be equal from the start, not just in dignity, but also in responsibility, also in leadership. And maybe this theology that I once embraced of men leading and women submitting, maybe that's not biblical at all. Maybe that's a result of the fall. And it's tarnished every human society, every culture, every civilization from the dawn of history, even the church. And that's why so many women have been hurt by it, because it's not part of God's design. It's part of the fall. I don't want to speak for anybody else, but I want to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry that for so long I was part of this system. I was part of this culture that hurt so many women, that limited so many women in the church and even my own marriage. And I recognize there isn't really anything I can do to make up for that. But I think the least I can do, me personally, is I want to see women the way God sees women. To see them as image bearers and co-rulers, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. <clears throat> Thankfully, the story of Eve doesn't end at the fall. Right after the curse of the fall, we have this Bible verse where Eve, the name, appears for the first time. And that's in Genesis 3.20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Okay, side note, some conservatives, they also, they use this passage and they say, oh, see, Adam named Eve. So this is an example of him exerting authority. So I don't think that's the case. For example, in Genesis 16, Hagar names God. Okay, so it, that doesn't mean she's in charge of God. Okay, anyways, anyway, what I want to get at here is Eve's identity. Okay, Eve's her name means life. And what's fascinating about this narrative is that uh, Eve gets her name immediately after the fall, not before the fall. Even though she made this terrible mistake, she ate this fruit, she disobeyed God, she rejected God, which brought death and destruction into this world, this mistake isn't her identity. Her identity is still life. That's the statement of her being Eve. And I think what this teaches is there's always a second chance. You know, this lesson is repeated in Genesis 4, the following chapter. In that chapter, Adam and Eve, they have two kids, Cain and Abel. And this is the playing out of the curse, okay? Cain kills his brother Abel. The seed of the serpent is waging war against the seed of the woman. But at the end of this chapter, we get this interesting narrative, which is Genesis 4, 25 to 26. It goes, Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son. He named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Because of sin, death is inevitable. Suffering is inevitable. Pain is inevitable. But there's always a second chance. And here, Eve was taught once again, there's always a second chance. Our identity is life. And so we are more defined by who God calls us to be, by who God declares us to be, than any mistake we ever make.
no matter what mistakes Adam and Eve made or what mistakes Cain made or what mistakes anybody in humanity made, what mistakes the church has made, no matter what mistakes have ever been uh, committed, the, the promise of God that one day the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent would always come true. One day, Jesus, who is the seed of the woman, would come and he would die for the sins of humanity, rise from the dead in victory. And when he did that, he crushed the serpent's head. And he's invited all who want to follow him to join this thing called the church. And this church is a place of second chances. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter who you who you say you are, who other people say you are. It doesn't matter what mistakes you've committed. You are welcome here. Even if in the past your life embodied death, here you can have life. Even if your past was filled with pain, here you can have peace. And even if your past had experiences of patriarchy, here you can have honor. Regardless of who you are, what sufferings you've went through, whether it's because of sins you've committed yourself or sins others committed against you, I encourage you to see yourself as God sees you. God loves you. God honors you. God is with you. God has redeemed you. And in God, you're victorious. Let's pray together as we close. Father, we thank you so much for um, who you created us to be, who you designed us to be. And we thank you that's you made us all to be image bearers, to bear your image, to uh, to represent you, to know you, to be like you, from the greatest of us to the least of us. That regardless of what we've done in the past that has tarnished who we are, what people have called us, what we've called ourselves, our truest identity is that we are life, we are love, we are joy, we are your adopted children. God, we repent for all the ways in which we've hurt one another, ways in which we've uh, made people to be less than who you, de you designed them to be. And God, we ask that you invite us into truth, to discovering how we ought to view one another how we ought to fight for one another, how we ought to empower one another. And God, we recognize that this road can be messy. There may be times in which we disagree with one another. But God, I pray that above all, we would keep the two commandments, that we would love God and love our neighbor. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.